you'll take a Bible and uh, turn to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. Uh, it's in these Bibles in the pews. is page 224. That's where we'll be in Ruth chapter 4 today as you're turning there. Uh, like you'd know that uh, Michael's going to play organ at the worship services for General Assembly this week, so if you happen to live stream that you know, and someone looks familiar, it's him. And welcome back Eric and Annette Ashley and their children. Eric was on our pastoral staff for a number of years and now is uh, having served another church in Nashville. Is plant, they are planting a church. Y'all been at it a, a, 10 months, a year? January, okay. So I wanted to point out they're here in case you get to speak to them after the service is over. Uh, I've been do doing a series on the, uh, the book of Ruth, and uh, I plan to preach five sermons on it. So the, the last one will be next week, uh, Lord willing. But we come now to chapter 4. Yeah, I'd like to read that, and then I'll try and give as minimal of background as I can. Hear God's word. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sir, uh, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. I'll stop there, so ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we know that we of our own accord really cannot even understand, much less apply these words. So we ask that your Holy Spirit now would enlighten us. You tell us we do not live by bread alone. 
but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So please feed our hungry souls, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, this is the fourth sermon in uh, a series of sermons on the book of Ruth, which records events which took place some some, uh, 3,000 years ago and yet are relevant to each of us. The book of Ruth shows how God can take tragic events and cause good to come from those. John Piper, as he began uh, his book uh, on Ruth, he says the message of Ruth shows us that the life of the godly is not a straight line to glory. It's not like a highway that goes through a flat state like Kansas, like an interstate. Instead, it's a winding mountain road, much like the Blue Ridge Parkway. And he says there are rock slides and precipices and fog and slippery curves and hairpin turns which can make us go backward even as we are going forward. And this road does not let us see very far ahead, but there are frequent signs which say the best is yet to come. Now, one of the challenges of preaching from a book that is a story that's being told is the need to give some level of review each week. And the temptation is to spend all of my time just reviewing, especially since it's a great story. But I'll try and be brief, so if you can, imagine a 30-minute TV program, and they start off with previously on the book of Ruth. Chapter 1, here's what happened. A man of Israel named Elimelech, due to a famine in his home area in the town of Bethlehem, Bethlehem from which Jesus will be born about a thousand years later. Elimelech decides to leave, and he takes his wife Naomi, and they move to the pagan country of Moab. Now, while in Moab, tragedy strikes. After several years, Elimelech dies. And it doesn't stop there because they have two sons named Malon and Kilion who have married Moabite women. One named Orpah, and we have a celebrity today in our country who was named after her, but her mother misspelled it. Imagine if I was reading this, having to re-explain Oprah every time I, I did this. But Orpah and Ruth, they had married the two sons. Well, the two sons died. So in chapter 1, we're left with three widows, three rather helpless widows in that day and age. And Ruth, uh, Naomi hears that back in Israel, the harvest, there, there's, there's light at the end of the horizon for, for food. So the latter part of chapter 1 is spent with her trying to talk to two daughters-in-law into staying in Moab and not going back with her to Israel. And she basically says, from all indication, look what God has done to me. He's brought tragedy into my life, and if you stick with me, the same thing is going to continue to happen to you. Uh, Orpah kisses her and decides to go back home to her people. But Ruth says, I'm not leaving. I'm staying with you even to my death. And your God, not only will your people be my people, your God will be my God. She now from all indication and from what comes later, is worshiping Yahweh. This person from a pagan nation has now come to faith in the God of Israel. We move to chapter 2. And whereas chapter 1 covers several years, chapter 2 covers one day. And a lot happens on that one day. They're back in Bethlehem. And as was allowed, poor people, real poor people, could go into fields that were being harvested and they could glean, they could cut grain from the edges of the field and the corners by biblical law they were allowed that so Ruth goes to a field 
in her poverty, she goes and she begins to glean, and it so happens, is the wording of the Bible, that the owner of the field named Boaz comes that day. And he's at, he asks his head foreman, who is that? And by then word has spread in Bethlehem because they all knew of Naomi coming back and she looked a lot different now and she'd been through terrible hard times. And he said, oh, well, that's the, that's the Moabitess that came back with Naomi. And, and Boaz is impressed. He, what she's done is a very worthy thing by helping her mother-in-law. And so he shows favor to, to Ruth, and he, he tells her where to get water and, and tells his workers, leave extra grain there, drop it on the ground so that she can get it. And she, she goes home at the end of the day. He prays for her. He not only praises her, he prays for her in that chapter. And you can tell that he's, he's affectionate toward her. So she goes back to Naomi that day with a, a large load of, of grain that he has given to her. Then we come to chapter 3 which is rather weird. In chapter 3, it can be summarized with this, and that is that Naomi is manipulating maybe too hard a statement. She comes up with a plan to try to induce Boaz to marry Ruth, and the plan is very dangerous. So she dresses, tells Ruth to get all dressed up, cleaned up, perfumed up, and to go to the threshing floor. Now it's seven weeks later from the first day that they have, that uh, Ruth and, and Boaz had met because the harvest was finished. It would take them seven weeks. Now they're threshing, they're threshing what they've harvested. They're outside the city gates where this is going on, and Boaz and his, his workers spend the night there with the grain because they're at the end of the process. This is, this is the, uh, the money time, and they don't want anybody stealing it. So they're, they're there 24-7, working in the day and then sleeping there at night. And so Naomi says to Ruth, I want you to get all cleaned up and go down there. After it's dark, find out where Boaz is sleeping. Go down and then lay down at his feet, and he will tell you what to do. What that means, we're not quite sure. And anybody's guess is as good as the other. But he wakes up. Chapter 3 tells us he wakes up startled, and he says, who are you? And then she says, I'm, I'm Ruth, the Moabitess. And, and he, well, let me read it to you. Chapter 3, here's what he said. Because what she says basically is a proposal. She says in verse 9 of chapter 3, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, some, there's some couples here that have just gotten engaged over the past few weeks. I won't embarrass them. But guys, did your, the woman, your, your fiancé, did they look at you and say, I am so-and-so, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer? I hope not. But, but you know what that was in those days? It's a marriage proposal. And she's taking the initiative, and she's saying, you are the next of kin, uh, you are the Redeemer, which I'll explain in a moment, the one who can redeem our inheritance and our family name from being lost. I want you to fill that role for me. I want to be your wife. Boaz perfectly understands what she's saying. But he does what is right, and he says, I can't because I'm not the closest kin who has the first dibs, you might say, on being the Redeemer of the property. Now, anything could have happened at that moment. Anything good, bad, or ugly could have happened then. But he says, wait, or he says, I want you to go back to Naomi and go before the sun comes up. 
so that no one will see you and no one will think that something has gone on that hasn't gone on. And here, take this big load of grain with you back to your mother-in-law. So she gets back to Naomi at the, at the end of chapter 3. She comes back home at dawn. And Naomi says, well, how'd it go? And it's almost as though Naomi's expecting to find out she's married. And she tells her what's happened. And Naomi, in our colloquial way, says to her, sit tight. You just wait. Tomorrow, or which today, it was at dawn, is going to be a big day. Now we're at chapter 4. Was that fast enough? All right, that's about as fast as I can go. Now, here are the two customs as we come to chapter 4 that are in play. And I explained these last week. One was a custom, a practice then from the Old Testament called the Leverate Law. And so in the Old Testament, it, it, was, it was vital that a man's family name was preserved. So according, if he died without an heir, God had given steps that were to be taken to ensure that he had an heir who would carry on his name and inherit his property. So that the property wasn't lost. It stayed in the family, the extended family. So it's customary and even required by God's law that the widow of a dead man be married to one of her deceased husband's relatives. And the closer the relative, the closer the bloodline was the priority. And so the first son of such a marriage, if that marriage then produced a son, he would become the dead man's heir. He would get a part of the inheritance. Now this plays in heavily with why this first kinsman redeemer rejects the offer. So Elimelech and Naomi's sons have died, and they have no heirs. Naomi is on her own with her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And so Ruth is her only hope for producing an heir of the family. And Ruth basically is volunteering to do that because Naomi is beyond childbearing age. And so Boaz recognizes that Ruth is willing to do that. That's why in verse 10 he says, this kindness is greater than that which she showed earlier. Verse 10 of, of, of three, chapter 3. Now the other custom is the kinsman redeemers, a Hebrew word called goel. And it means to redeem or to recover. And so this is mentioned in Leviticus 25 that if you're, it says if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. Again, it was a concern that the land stay in the family. So if your brother went bankrupt and said, I've got to sell off the family farm, you as a close relative were to come and say, I'll buy it. You would redeem it so that your, your brother would not be impoverished and his family would be impoverished and the land would stay in the family for that time until the year of Jubilee. So the kinsman redeemer had this responsibility. Now Naomi had such a kinsman, but he obviously shows no interest in that. Um, so what happens? Chapter 4. It begins with Boaz, as you can almost imagine, in the misty morning heading straight to the city gate. Well, what's up with the gate? Gates in those days were very important, even in a small town like Bethlehem. In the Middle East today, in certain cities, especially in Israel, the houses and the roads are real close together. I mean, real close together, narrow roads, and there's no place to gather. I mean, you go from one building to the other. It's not like here with yards and neighborhoods in that, that respect. So the city gate became 
a portico, not only the place where you would come and go, but a whole wide open area. It was normal in those days. And in that wide open area, in this city's square, you might say, though it wasn't square, business was transacted, uh, legal th things uh, were handled, um, gossip <laughs> was passed. Uh, you would come and go watch it. If you wanted people watch, you know, it's an early version of the Atlanta airport, I guess. You're sitting there by the gate, and you say, there goes so-and-so. wonder where they're going. Hey, where are you going today, Bubba? What's, uh, what's that in your hand? And so they, that's what happened at the city gate. So Boaz is going there with a plan. And his plan, as he heads there early in the morning, his plan is to assemble a quorum of elders and to see a transaction carried out. Almost immediately, or as it says in chapters 1 and 2, and so it happened, the, non, the unnamed kinsman redeemer comes walking by. He remains anonymous. It's interesting, Bible scholars speculate why he's left anonymous, um, but that's for another time. Um, they just call him Mr. No Name. So he says, turn aside, friends, sit down here. That's what uh, Boaz says to him. They obviously know each other. And Boaz is obviously respected because all these people essentially say, yeah, I mean, no one argues with him about sitting down. And before Mr. So-and-so knows what's happening, Boaz has gathered ten elders. Hey, hey, come here, have a seat. Sit down. So now this jury of ten men is getting ready to decide Ruth's fate. What happens next leaves us scratching our heads, but, but that's where this thing of the kinsman redeemer comes in. So once this guy's seated, there's this panel of witnesses. Boaz brings up the subject of their kinswoman, Naomi, verses 3 and 4. And I'll paraphrase it for you. He says to him, Naomi has a field. She needs to sell it to raise money, to live on. If there is a kinsman redeemer, however, he should buy the field. He can buy the field and keep it in the family. Now, of course, the buyer would immediately get all the property and add it to his holdings, what he already had, provided there are no children involved. Okay, that, that becomes a sticking point here in a moment. Boaz has said nothing about children. It's Naomi who's beyond childbearing age, so this guy's thinking, hey, this is a good land deal. This is a, a win. And Boaz is saying, you're first in line. Are you interested? And he's saying this in front of these other witnesses. So a transaction, a legal transaction is getting ready to happen. And the man jumps at it. It's in verse 4. He, he instantly agrees. Great opportunity. Yeah, I'll do it. I'll redeem it. I'll pay for the land. And my, suddenly my 20 acres have just become 40 acres. And then Boaz very intentionally has a little surprise for him. Up to this point, he has said nothing about Ruth in verse 5. And I'll paraphrase it again. Oh, by the way, one more thing. When you acquire the field, along with it comes Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead man whose field it was. You must marry her in order to raise up a child for the dead man, a child who will inherit the field when he grows up. Now, this changes everything. Because to own more land would mean you have a larger inheritance to leave your family. But, and that was a great opportunity, to marry this younger widow who can still bear children means that there's a possibility she'll have a son and that will change everything because now, however the inheritance was going to be divided up, all the slices just got smaller. 
I don't need to apply that today, do I? We get it. We get it. This is, a, this is problematic for a lot of people in, in, related to this extended family, inheritance. And so uh, he, when he recognizes that, the kinsman redeemer, Mr. Unnamed, says, I cannot redeem it for us, myself lest I impair my own inheritance. That's what it was. It was a business transaction. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And then in verse 7, he, he does something that even by the time Ruth was written was no longer practiced because the writer of Ruth explains it. He takes off one of his chacos and he hands it over to Boaz. Now, I don't know if it had a barcode on it or what, but this was a public declaration that a legal transaction has now taken place. So that if later he said, I didn't, I didn't really do that, Boaz, Boaz uh, tricked me. All the witnesses, the elders, the people that were all gathered around. In fact, it tells us later in the chapter, it's not just the, the witnesses, the elders. It's other people have seen it. And they could say, no, 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 I was there. It's just like if you witness a wedding and there's wedding bands exchanged. You say, no, we saw it. It was a legal transaction. It took place. It was public. No one could dispute it. So that was a custom that was practiced apparently at that time. Somebody asked me, two people asked me after the service, did he keep the sandal or return it? I don't know. It said he gave it to him. I'm going to assume he kept it. What he did with it, I have, I don't know. All right. Uh, don't you see sandals on the side of the road sometime here? Maybe they, I just realized that. Maybe there was a legal transaction and we, we lost it. Who knows? I mean, there have been land deals on Riverside Drive and we didn't even, didn't even know when they left a, a, a sandal. All right, I've got three observations in two minutes to tell them. Uh, I'm going to go about five minutes over time, folks. I mentioned at the beginning of the story how John Piper talked about that your, your life in Christ... We want it to be, look like a straight interstate highway where we can see, oh, that's going to happen next year and next year and everything's predictable and I want to know God's plan for me and if I'm going to college and who I'll marry and, and how long I'll live and all that. But it's not like that. It's, it's like a windy mountain road and we, we don't see very far in front of us. In fact, we can get to one place where we think, I'm getting ready to drive off a cliff and then the road turns a switchback. It, it comes back and, and we go in the other direction. And that's what we have in the book of Ruth. That's why you and I need a strong, strong understanding and belief in the providence and the sovereignty of God. We, we almost quote Romans 8.28 like a cliche that, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose, but that God's sovereign hand is moving and working through all things. And we see this, though they don't put it that way in the book of Ruth, it's all through Ruth. It was showing up with the phrase, and it so happened. It so happened she went to that field. It so happened that Boaz was there. It so happened that the kinsman redeemer walked by that, that first morning right there in front of Boaz. And the problem is what I think we run into is we tend to leave God out of the equation. And when we do that, we're left with one of two options. The first option, or one option, we show that we leave God out of the equation when we take matters into our own hands and we're not concerned about doing what is right. We just know, i got to get it done. 
I can't wait on God. I don't know what God's will is. I don't care what God's will is. It could have been like Boaz that night on the threshing floor. He could very easily have said, I'll, I want you. I'll, I'm going to have you right now. That's just who I am. And I got to be true to myself. But he did what was right. And he didn't do that. So one option when we leave God out is just we take matters in our own hands and say, I'll force it to happen. Even though, yeah, I don't care what law or, or legality or, or what, what trust I break in the process. The second, we leave God out by resigning ourselves to despair and hopelessness. With the two high-profile suicides this past week that we're all aware of, and the surprising, if not shocking, statistics that the CDC has come out with of the great increase of suicide over the past 19 years, up in some states as much as 30%. Uh, I mean, however you read those statistics, they're staggering. And the assumption is suicide typically only happens to people who are severely depressed, despondent, but that's not the case uh, at all. And it can be, but it's not, it's not all like that. And I'm mentioning this because if those statistics are even in the ballpark of being accurate, then there are people sitting here now in a crowd this size that are in despair. Maybe not at the point that you've arrived that death would be better than life, but you're headed in that direction for one reason or another. It could be a thousand different things. And I want to say to you, don't leave God out of the equation. God has not abandoned you. And you may be on that turn thinking, I'm headed off this cliff and the road is going to go right that way and you're not. Think about this, and I'm drawing from an idea by Peter Kreef that he used with the book of Job. But I want to speak specifically to women, though it applies to all of us. Women, because you can relate more to Naomi women. Would you have wanted to be Naomi in chapter 1? No. Husband dies, sons die. Would you have wanted to be Naomi in chapter 2? Sending your daughter-in-law out as the poorest of the poor to gather grain? No. Would you have wanted to be Naomi in chapter 3 hatching a real dangerous plan and to a certain degree trying to force something by sending Ruth to the threshing floor that night? No. Would you have wanted to be Naomi in chapter 4? Yes. Especially as the book ends and you see the lineage, and by the end of the book she's got her grandson on her lap, what she thought she'd never have. Here's the point. Chapter 1 was hopeless. Chapter 2 was a glimmer of hope. Chapter 3 is puzzling. The sun doesn't break through until the last chapter. Yet their path all the way was under God's control the whole time. The second observation is Ruth and Boaz were committed to doing the right thing. And boy, do we need that today. How do we know what the right thing is to do? Well, we read the Bible. We listen, depending on your age, you listen to your parents. You listen to godly counsel and those in authority over you. You, you learn from godly counselors in your life who know you best and love you most. And ultimately from the Spirit of God 
as he takes God's word and the scriptures and confirms it with godly counsel, you learn to do what is right. Here's why I'm saying this. Our thinking today as a culture and even even in the church, we, we've just been taught. You do what you feel like doing. I do what I feel like by doing. And if my mind says one thing, but my emotions say the other, my emotions trump my mind. And we see here that God designed marriage. And his order in his design was leave, cleave, one flesh. Sexual union. The sexual union was to then demonstrate and show forth the spiritual and emotional oneness. But what do we do as a culture? We flip that backwards. Sexual union, then maybe we'll leave and cleave. Boaz easily could have done that. And I just want to say, we need to do the right thing. You will, young people, listen to me. Let me talk to you like a granddaddy. You will never regret doing the right thing. You'll never regret it. And Boaz and Ruth did the right thing. Though he was put to death by Hitler just a couple of weeks before the Third Reich fell, Diedrich Bonhoeffer's writings continue on. And in his book, Letters from Prison, he wrote this about marriage. And he's comparing marriage, he's showing that marriage is more than just love between two individuals. Here's what he said. Marriage is more than your love for each other. It has a higher dignity and power, for it is God's holy ordinance through which he wills to perpetuate the human race till the end of time. In your love, you see only your two selves in the world, but in marriage, you are a link in the chain of the generations. In your love, you see only the heaven of your own happiness, but in marriage, you are placed at a post of responsibility towards the world and mankind. Your love is your own private possession, but marriage is more than something personal. It is a status. It is an office. Third observation. And that is, it cost Boaz to do what he did. And this is where he becomes a wonderful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Boaz was a kinsman. He had to be a relative to Elimelech's family to do what he did. Jesus became like us. He became a man in order that he could become a substitute, that he could die in our place. Boaz redeemed a penniless alien and made her his bride. Jesus redeems us who are aliens, penniless aliens, and he makes us his bride, the church. John said to Jesus, you should baptize me, not me baptize you. But Jesus said, no, allow it because you should, you should do so to, because it's fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus did the right thing. Boaz provided for this young Moabite a future and a hope. And Christ, as our Redeemer, provides for us a future and a hope. So we look forward to that day when we will stand in glory and we will see his face and we will praise his name forever and ever in that holy place. Let's pray together. Our Father, our steps are ordered by you. And our hearts lead us astray. They can lead us astray. You tell us there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And we pray that we would trust in your, your sovereignty, especially, Lord, it's easy when things are going well, but it's hard when things are difficult. And for brothers and sisters here now that are in difficulties, 
Lord, may you show them light. May you assure them of your love. May you display your power even in their weakness. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.